Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Uh, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. Today is Pentecost. How many of you knew that today's Pentecost? All right. All right, great. So Pentecost in the church calendar is the day that we remember uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised uh, his disciples, the kind of the foundation of the early church, I'm going to send to you, he says, the paraclete or the advocate, this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who's going to empower you to carry on uh, my mission of revealing God's love to the world. And if you know that story, they're kind of gathered in an upper room and they're just kind of waiting. They're not exactly sure what it is they're looking for. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit kind of sweeps into the room and alights on them uh, like tongues of fire, it says. Um, and then they go out into the streets in Jerusalem. And they begin to preach in all of these different languages, uh, kind of sharing the, the revelation of what God is really like because of the story of Jesus. And, you know, a lot of times on, uh, on Pentecost, we focus on that portion in Acts 2 where it talks about the early church. And it gives us this amazing list of, like, these are the things that the early church was doing uh, that demonstrated what it looks like when a, a group of people are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that they gathered together, they listened to teaching, they shared everything that they have in common, they loved well, there were signs, there were wonders, and their numbers were being added on to daily. And we've looked at that in the past um, on days such as this. Is, this is the template for us uh, to look at the early church and see what was, what, was the, what was going on there, what are the indications that we're on the right journey. And today, the passage that I want us to look at, you know, if that Acts 2 portion is almost like, here's the what of being the church, um, this, is a, this is a portion of a letter that Paul wrote to a young church that kind of speaks to the why. So this is almost like the engine behind all of those different actions that we see within the early church. Um, one thing that we've been focusing on a lot here recently is, what does it mean for us to be a thinking church and a feeling church and a doing church? And to really begin to get into the mechanics of all three of those things so that we know that we're being faithful. So I'm going to read uh, this portion of Ephesians chapter 4, uh, beginning in the 11th verse. And again, if you're familiar with that Pentecost story, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Like this is, this is what's going on just beneath the surface. Paul says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And I love that when we, you know, looking at, okay, this is what the early church did and this is how they were gathering and these are the things they were doing. What Paul's saying is there's this thing happening beneath that, that number one, this is something that Christ himself has put together. That Christian community, you are not here because you just decided this would be a good idea. And hey, maybe we'll get together and read a, an old book and sing some songs together. Wouldn't that be fun every, I don't know, seventh day for an hour and a half? Like, we didn't just make this thing up. Like, Jesus himself has called us together. 
And not only that, it's the spirit of Jesus inside each one of us that's prompted us to come into this place, to come into his body and to discover what it means to be part of that body. So Christ has given us a vision and a path for community that we're to be unified in our pursuit of intimacy with God and we're to look more like Jesus day by day. So it's Christ that instills within us this vision. What does it look like when God has finished the work he started, not just in us as individuals, but for us as a people gathered together, rescued into the new family? And not only that, but being given this divine vocation of going out and rescuing the rest of the world and seeing how God's spirit is collecting it all back together and redeeming it and restoring it to its former glory. But not only does he give us this vision of like, this is the end product, this is what it's going to look like when we get there, but Christ also gives us this path. He shows us this is how we're to walk this out day by day, knowing we are not going to get it right. And so we're unified, not because we've arrived at something, but because we are in pursuit of God together. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times what's happened is that the church has lowered its sights from being about pursuing intimacy with God to drawing all the right borders and boundaries and making sure we all agree on the same doctrinal statements and we use the same language. And we've taken our sights off of that high calling. And that's the first place that we begin to attack one another, where we begin to pull away, where bitterness sets in, unforgiveness, and we start to nitpick all of these little human idiosyncrasies. And essentially what happens is we all just fall back into our patterns in middle school and high school, of judging people by these really gross, you know, surface-level things, their age or their clothes they wear or the color of their skin or whatever it is, we kind of start picking at those things when we lose sight of that higher calling that we have to be unified in our pursuit of God. Because I believe when we see that as the central calling, all of the fantastic, uh, you know, diversity that we see within our community, everybody's stories they bring in actually become an asset to that pursuit. And in the process of doing so, when we keep our sights on intimacy with God together, we begin to look more like Jesus day to day. But we have to move together, and I think this is what's so important in what Paul is saying. Nobody gets left behind in this vision of the kingdom. And I think, unfortunately, when we bring in some of these uh, kind of economic structures of the world and we place them in the kingdom, we start to believe some of those things, that certain people earn certain positions, that you've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that if you've gotten to a certain place, it's because you've deserved it and other people just need to try harder. But in the kingdom, we have this radically different perspective of how we're organized, that none of us get left behind, that everybody has a place, everybody has inherent value, and our role is to help us to reveal that value to one another more and more. And so how we engage in the process of being the people of God is the product itself. There's another really beautiful passage in Philippians 3 where Paul's talking about this, this, this pursuit of Jesus with everything. And he says, not that we've already attained this. He's speaking of himself and the people that he works with. He says, not that we've already attained this, but we're pressing on. We're moving forward towards Christ. And he says, all of you who are mature should take such a vision of things. And how many times do we think maturity means you've arrived at a level, Right? Like you took a test and you got 100 points on it and now you're mature. Whereas your friend only got 70 points on the test and so they're immature. We think maturity is an arrival point in our growth as human beings and then it's static. 
But actually what Paul's saying to us is, no, maturity is the way in which you walk the path, the way in which you deal with your stuff, the trajectory that you stay true to, how you come together in community, how we offer one another forgiveness and grace daily, continually empowering ourselves to keep going. That if we mess up, it's okay. If the thing isn't how we think it should be, that's okay. But it's in the process of walking it out that we actually see the demonstration of what it means to be the people of God. And in that light then, when we look in Ephesians 4, when and when Paul is saying, hey, we didn't invent these roles for these people, like these kind of super Christians that are going to be in charge of everything. He says, no, Christ gave these roles specifically to help everybody catch the vision of who we are to become together, but also to corral us together in, in the process, on the path. And if you look at those kind of, we call this the five-fold ministry in a lot of different church structures. Um, the apostles, people who have that, that kind of cast the vision, gather people together. The prophets, people who stand in the presence of the people and speak on behalf of God, encouraging and challenging us. Uh, the evangelists, those who have a special heart for going out to those who don't know the message of Jesus yet and through loving them into the kingdom, not arguing them into the kingdom, but actually loving them into this reality of what God is like. The pastors, those of us who have been called to shepherd and care for people along the journey. And the teachers, those of us who open up the scriptures and begin to unveil the truths that God has been speaking to us this whole time, but we weren't necessarily aware of. All of those different roles, and I believe every single person in here is endowed with one of those special uh, dispensations, shall we say, of a gift, means that together we all help each other move forward. So I want us just to take a moment here, and I want you to turn to two or three people that you came with and answer this question. What do you think it means to look more like Jesus day by day? What does that mean to you? How have you heard that described, or how have you come to realize that specifically within your own story? So just take a couple minutes, turn to one another, uh, and discuss. All right, go ahead and wrap up that thought. I think it's a good example of those phrases that we use all the time within the church. We're like, does everybody believe in grace? Yes, everybody believes in grace. What is that? And we're like, uh, I don't know. You know, it's like, are we supposed to look more like Jesus? Yes, absolutely. What does that mean? Grow beards and wear sandals? I don't know. And it's, I think it's that, this is that healthy thinking going, what do we mean when we say this? And I think we come to some really fantastic perspectives that Jesus didn't come to replicate himself in us, but he came to reveal to us what does it mean to be fully human in the way that God has crafted us to be. I think the beauty, you know, as I've um, studied and taught personality over the past three years, one of the beautiful things I see in that is that all of us, when we come to Jesus, we discover a story or a lesson or a moment in his life that reflects back to us. Jesus mirrors back to us, oh, this is what it looks like to be a healthy, whole, and complete human being, to come into agreement with how God has crafted us. I think it's imperative that we're coming back to that time and again to know that that's, that's the vision that that Jesus has given us, not just for us as individuals, but also for us as a people. 
But the kingdom of God, the church, is supposed to be the vision of this is what it looks like when God has rescued all of us and brought us back to our own humanity. And we are that shining example to the rest of the world of this is, this is what it means to live in God's love and to practice that love with one another. And it doesn't mean that we always get it right, but we're on that trajectory. But when we lose sight of Christ's vision for our lives, we are tossed back and forth by our own fears and desires. And so this is kind of the second part of what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 4. Is he saying when we, when we are the church, when we practice the roles God's given us, when nobody gets left behind, when we're asking these important questions about what does it mean to look like Jesus, what does it mean for us to love each other well, then we have this trajectory. But when we lose sight, when we take, our, when we take that high calling away from the people of God and we make it more about let's just behave Let's make sure we all agree on the same things or whatever it might be. Even if it's just, hey, let's just be better people. Uh, we find that we're tossed back and forth uh, by our own fears and desires. I think the challenge in this then, in that high calling of pursuing intimacy with God together, means that we have to submit to who God is calling us to become. And that's such a scary word in our modern era. When we talk about submission, we see a lot of examples of very unhealthy submission, don't we? We've seen that all over the place where unhealthy submission actually becomes oppression, where people are, uh, you know, where there is an identity that is imposed upon a person or a group of people that strips from them their inherent value and that they become, you are what you do or you are what I say you are or you, you are what you have, whatever it might be, all of these lies, we know how dangerous submission can be when it's unhealthy. But in that, there's a challenge for us to trust that God is good. And I think a lot of us are afraid to submit to who God is calling us to be because we do not believe that God is good and that who he's calling us to be is actually more than we can create for ourselves. But that we actually think if we are to be obedient to God, that it's going to make us small. It's going to hold us back. And so we enter into this kind of existential crisis between the desire to control ourselves, to control our environment, to control other people, to control God, and the actual submission to the divine to allow God's shining light upon us to reveal who we are actually called to be. I've said it many times, I think in our society we have misappropriated the idea of freedom. Freedom for us a lot of times means that you can go to the grocery store and there are 30 different kinds of laundry detergent. And isn't that great that you're free? You know? Freedom means options. That you, you are a self-made person and you can do whatever you want and there's so many options for you. And then any time that anybody comes along and says that there's parameters to life, you are now by definition less free, right? This is how we operate. Whether it's a law or even just an expectation in a relationship, all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I'm less free. And if I really want to be a free person, I just need all the options, I just need, you know, if, if I'm being invited to do things or whatever it is, I just need to hit maybe on everything, and that's how I'm free. And we find that we're existentially miserable because we've crafted a Teflon lifestyle that every kind of definition or expectation just kind of slides off of us, and we have nothing real to hold on to. We don't have a sure identity. We don't have a trajectory for our lives. We don't have the depth of intimacy and relationship that we were created for because we refuse to submit to anything 
because we want to control ourselves and we want to control who we are and we want to control what we get to do. And it's amazing that even in French existentialism, which seems like the polar opposite to Christianity, there's this guy, Jean-Paul Sartre, very miserable guy in the 1960s. He said, this kind of freedom is an illusion. That's an illusion. Because even if you were to cast off all expectations of society and religion and family, you're still ensnared by your human desires. And so we need to rethink the idea of freedom. And I think then when we come back to, to, to our faith, when we come back to the scripture, we find that there's a dramatically different way to understand what it means to be free. And what does this mean for us specifically when it comes to committing to God and committing to community? I think it's very easy for you and I to lower our sights and lower our expectations of community in order to protect ourselves from disappointment. It's very easy when we know theologically, we've read the book, we've read the Bible, that God is calling us to be part of a people group, but it's easy for us to lower our expectations of what, what it is that we're doing here to protect ourselves from being disappointed. Because we have felt that when we take our sights off of the vision that Christ has for the community and we've made it about lesser things, we start to become tossed back and forth in that control submission paradigm, figuring out what does it mean to be free? What is my identity? What is my purpose? And in that chaos of not knowing where we're being called to go and how we're going there, it breeds this guardedness within us and it breeds this aggression within us, and we want to hold each other at arm's length. And a lot of times what happens in communities is say, I will not fully commit myself to this thing, to this group of people, until it is worthy of my presence, which is really to say, I will not commit until it's perfect. And we've judged the community, we've judged the people of God by the product without recognizing that there's a process in that. But in doing so, when we hold each other at arm's length, when we only offer up a maybe to God and a maybe to community, what we're really doing is trying to hide from the reality that maybe we aren't the finished product either. That we won't allow ourselves the kindness of recognizing that we are in process. This is something that I've come to recognize in, you know, gosh, eight years of, of working in a church. Y'all, it's going to be six years since I was here in August crazy. Last month, I remember the, it was, uh, it was like three weekends ago, I remember hanging out with Cole. I was driving through town and we went out to get a drink and we had this conversation and he just like dropped this bomb on me and here we are. That's crazy. But this is something that I've recognized in this and he and I have talked about this for a long time. If you walk into relationship, if you walk into church community with this expectation that it's going to drain you, that will 100% become true. Okay? If you enter into a relationship one-on-one -on -one with somebody and you say, this is going to cost me. If you come into a church community, if you show up on Sundays or in your community groups and you say, this thing is going to drain me, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy and it will 100% become true. And that's when we're guided by fear, self-protection. We feel the chaos of being tossed back and forth by what we desire, by our fears, by being taken advantage of in the past, of unhealthy submission, of an of a obsessive desire to control our environment. But one of the challenging things, I think, when we know that we are called to love is to recognize that love is a choice to not choose. 
That's what love is. Love is a choice to not choose. To recognize that one yes in our lives means that it's going to be followed by a thousand no's that you are not even aware of yet. And conversely, to offer one no to the world means that there's going to be a thousand yeses attached to that. And there is a tremendous amount of responsibility that comes when we recognize that out of our free will, we are called to love, which is called to accept the responsibility of what happens when we say yes and when we say no. But unfortunately, when we don't make those choices, those non-choices, we end up in this arrested development. We're frozen in time. Maybe we're surviving, but we're not thriving. We're not growing. We're not learning. We're not finding ourselves moving on down the road. We've kind of put ourselves into this suspended animation. And I know this in my own life. I think, you know, I've, I've spoken of this before. We have kind of three standard uh, ways of dealing with the world and the expectations. We fight or flight or freeze, right? Or another way to say it is that we have an aggressive stance towards the world. We have kind of this codependent, compliant stance with other people, or with, we, we have this stance of withdrawing. And I tend to fall into that latter category of being avoidant. And I find a lot of times that my inability to say yes or to say no, that non-choice becomes a choice in and of itself. And the biggest tragedy is that I begin to miss out on living my own life. But for some of you, you're so aggressive because you're control, you have this control of your agenda that you actually steamroll over beautiful opportunities to live a beautiful life. And some of you are so compliant, you're so dependent on other people that you don't pause to ask, is this the thing that God is actually calling me to do? And many of you have sat with me and you're trying to make these big, these big decisions in your life. We're talking about calling. I've always said the number one guidepost for us when it comes to making decisions as Christians is to say, will I look more like Jesus if I do this? And if you notice, that's not about what you feel. That's not about what you're thinking. That's not about your fears. Although all of those things are valid and they need to be named. But it's to have that vision. This is who Christ is calling me to. And it is my work with the Holy Spirit to begin to untangle why that is so hard for me to step into. And so we must name the ambivalence we feel about committing to God and to one another. Only then can we begin to move forward. The therapist Dan Allender has a beautiful definition for ambivalence. He said he was talking to his five-year-old granddaughter about something that they were wanting to do, and she said, Granddaddy, like, I want to do this thing, but I also don't want to do it. And a lot of times in, we think ambivalence means we could care less, could go either or. But it, in a more specific sense, ambivalence means, yes, I want this thing, and I also do not want this thing. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us are ambivalent when it comes to committing to following God, to following Jesus. And we're ambivalent when it comes to committing to our community because of those fears and those desires. The problem is that we know the right answer, so we just give it. If I said, hey, how many of you want to be in deeper relationship with God? I'm sure everybody in here would say yes. If I said, hey, how many of you don't really want to be in relationship with God? Probably everyone would, nobody would say yes to that. But we have to recognize that within ourselves there is this deep-seated ambivalence. Ambivalence doesn't mean that we don't care. Ambivalence means we're afraid. And I think when we can begin to admit that to ourselves and to one another, 
that begins us on this trajectory of being set free from our fears and even our desires. And it's only when we are fully open to love and to be loved that we can call ourselves free. It's not about, freedom is not about options. Freedom is about our ability to give and receive love without pretense. Instead of being a slave to that false freedom where we just say maybe to the whole world and to God and to hope that something comes out of that. But when you're able to start examining the why of the ambivalence that you have to being with God, to being with other people, that's going to give you the permission to explore how. How do you take that next step out of ambivalence into doing what we all know that we're called to do? And I think a lot of times we're beating ourselves up because we we jump straight to the how, that we're not reading the Bible enough or we're not showing up to church enough or we're not invested in community enough or whatever it is. And we give ourselves these excuses and we heap all this condemnation on ourselves that we're lazy or we don't care. And it's not really being tender to that tension of what it means to be a human being. But when we explore the why, then we can begin to explore the how. When it comes to worshiping with the people of God on Sundays, when it comes to gathering together throughout the week to encourage each other, to challenge each other, to pray over one another, when it comes to our personal time and how we spend that time with the Lord, when it comes to these other things that we know we're called to be obedient to, to actually practicing Sabbath, taking a day out of the week to recognize I am not what I do, when it comes to taking a vacation, a real vacation, some of y'all take your work with you and it's just you're working out of the office, you know, but a real vacation where you're, you're enjoying the goodness of God's creation, what it means to take sabbatical to step away from the hustle and bustle of life and to recenter on what truly matters in taking retreat. But we can't really deal with any of those categories of the things that we're supposed to do as Christians until we begin to name that ambivalence within our lives. So how do we uncover the why behind the ambivalence when it comes to commitment to God and to others? So a few weeks ago, our friend Stacy, who runs our tech team here and she works at Crew, um, was telling us this story that I thought was so wonderful as she's kind of learning how to disciple people and help them to name that thing beneath the thing. And so she actually, she's traveling up to Washington State today, but she recorded this short video just to kind of share with us one of these techniques of naming the why in our ambivalence. Hey friends, so recently I've been doing some discipleship and some coaching and I was working with a girl who was really struggling with this idea, this ambivalence in her life. On one hand, she really wanted to begin um, spending a lot of consistent time with the Lord and she really wanted to share her faith with her students. She was a teacher. On the other hand, she was really struggling to do so. And day after day, week after week, she just wasn't following through on the commitments that she had been making to herself uh, to, to do these different things to grow. And she was really just sure that the reason was that she was lazy. But I was pretty sure that wasn't what was going on. She had shown me lots of things that she was not lazy. And so we began to just explore her thoughts. Um, there's this awesome thing that we can do where we can actually watch ourselves thinking. And so I began to encourage her just, so when you, when you think this, then what, when this happens, then what, when this happens, then what? And we just began to do what we call thought download, where she just downloaded all of her thoughts to me, just everything that she was thinking about this situation. And at the end of the day, what we uncovered was that she was afraid 
she really felt like God was going to ask her to do things that she wasn't ready to do. And so, of course, she was avoiding spending time with him. Of course, she was avoiding um, doing the things that were going to help her move into the thing that she was so terrified to do. And it's when you begin to uncover that thought that you can start deciding what you want to do with it. And then you can get all of your power back to live out the way that you actually want to live. So I've been doing a lot of life coaching and I'm getting certified as a life coach um, with Brooke Castillo at the Life Coach School. And she has this really simple construct called the model that I want to introduce to you. So at the top of the model here is your circumstance. Your circumstance is completely neutral. Uh, we tend to think of circumstances as are positive or negative, but a circumstance is not. It's just neutral. Then we have a thought about our circumstance or many thoughts about our circumstances. And those thoughts lead to our feelings. And those, that feeling that we get because of the thought that we're thinking drives us into the actions that we take. And those actions give us the result. And though this seems really simple, one of the hardest parts to get is this actual idea that it's not your circumstances that lead to your feelings and your actions and your results, but it's actually your thoughts about those circumstances. We tend to really think, well, I felt this way because she said this. I did this because this happened. We live out of this kind of idea that we're just noticing what's happening in our life and in our body and in our mind and our emotions, um, and they're just a result of the things that are happening in our life. But the actual reality is that it's our thoughts about those that are driving this. And here's how we know this. Different people would have a different feeling and different actions based on the same exact circumstance. What would terrify someone might excite someone else. And so the circumstance isn't what's driving it. It's how you think about the circumstance that's driving it. And so as you think about this idea of living out uh, a consistency with the Lord and with the com with community and with the body um, and with here with our church community, we're going to give you some time to actually practice this. This model is fantastic and can be used in all sorts of different ways. We're going to give you a couple minutes and you're just going to do a thought download. We're going to download all of your thoughts about it. Just no judgment, complete compassion on yourself. Just try to figure out what's going on in your brain. Keep digging deeper. Keep asking why. Get to the bottom of it. You see, we have different parts of our brain going on. We have our prefrontal cortex that's trying to get the best for us, but we also have our primal brain that's going, stop, stop. You need to be safe. Let me help you. Don't do anything new or scary that's trying to keep you from doing those things. And so just having compassion on that, but seeing what's going on, bringing it out. Then pick one of those thoughts Figure out what feeling you're getting from it. Uh, I actually have to look up feelings words on the internet because I have a hard time identifying them. Figuring out what your feeling is and what you do when you feel that in your body and then the result that that gives you. And if this isn't a result that you want, then one way you can, you can begin to change that first is just understanding the model and having compassion on it. But then you can begin to find out what is the result that you want and work it backwards. What are the actions you would need to take to get that result? What feeling would you need to have in your body to do those actions? What thought would you need to think in order to feel that? 
And then you can begin to move from the thought you're currently thinking to the thought that you would like to think. Sometimes you can just jump right to it because they're both happening and you can just choose, this one serves me better and I want to stay on it. But sometimes you might have to work slowly towards it with thoughts like, I'm willing to consider this new thought. It might be possible that this new thought and that those things can bridge you to get to the thoughts that you want. So let's take a few minutes to practice this. If you want to talk more about it, I would always love to chat with you. And uh, I hope that it's really helpful. So I want you to take out your phone. And we're just going to practice this for a moment. I'm just going to give you just a couple minutes. Uh, Just run, run with the assumption that within you somewhere is this ambivalence when it comes to committing to God. This ambivalence when it comes to committing to being in community. And just to follow that path, like start putting down, what, are, what do you think about that? What do you think about committing to God? What do you think about committing to community? And just kind of keep asking yourself, why? Why do I think that? What's going on? And see how deep you can dig and, and then begin to make the connections with how that's making you feel and what that's making you do. So just take a couple moments and reflect on that. you didn't think you were going to have to actually do some work today. (laughs) It's important to remember there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is a lot of uncovering, of touching sensitive nerves, things that are buried deep down inside that, that motivate us to action whether we realize it or not. But part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to shine that light, but to lead us into truth. You know, he doesn't condemn us, even though it might feel that way, but he's there to lead us to truth. To, to do like what it says in the psalm, like, Lord, examine my heart, reveal to me my anxieties, because I inherently trust that you are good and where you're taking me is good. So I want you to keep your phones out and you can go to citybeautiful.ch slash praxis. We're getting ready to jump into this next season of community groups, of opportunities to serve. And this is gonna be open through the week until next week. So anytime this week you can sign up, but I just wanna briefly show you what this is gonna look like. Um, Next slide. There we go. So at the beginning, we're talking about some of our community groups. We have a couple community groups that are launching throughout um, the summer. This is going to go through the middle of September. That's your commitment um, So for those few months. Um, go back one. I'm not done yet. There we go. Um, we've got two small groups. Uh, Heather's group, Altered, meets here every Wednesday. Um, and that's about learning how to practice creativity in a prophetic way. Some amazing things are going on in that community. So if that's whether you're an amazing artist or you're absolutely terrible, like everybody come in and you're going to learn how to listen to the Lord through art. Um, and then on Fridays at North Quarter Credo, I meet with a couple people and we just meditate on a psalm and then we just intercede for this body. We're praying for you every Friday um, and we just enjoy our time there. So you can sign up for that as well. Um, there's a couple opportunities to serve. We've talked about some of these the past several weeks, but there's sp- specific roles that we're looking to get covered there. Um, And so I would encourage you, if you're not serving yet, commit, show up, say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be in. 
Um, so through the week, this is going to be open and available to you. And, and we're not a community who says we have all the answers and you should do our community groups and you should serve in our church. But we're saying these are opportunities for you to practice this, to begin to step out of the ambivalence that maybe is holding you back in certain areas of your life, to, to seek and to find and to try it out and see if God doesn't come through on the other side and, and begin to bless you in your ambivalence so that you're kinder to yourself uh, and the fact that we're all on a journey. So I want to invite you to stand with me. Uh, and I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. But I think a lot of times it's in worship, as we're singing these words and we're aware of what we're singing, that's giving us this, this vision that we have from Christ of what it looks like for us to be the people of God. And I just want to encourage you, as you're worshiping, enter into dialogue with the Holy Spirit to say, How, is this true? Like, do I believe this? One of the most lovely phrases in the story of Jesus is when, when this man's asking Jesus for healing for his son, he says, do you believe I can do this? He says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief, right? Like we're all, that's us. Like we're in this process. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. We're not there yet. We're not a finished product and okay. So just engage with the Holy Spirit and say, I believe this stuff. And I also don't. Teach me how to, to see what's going on there. What are these deep thoughts and fears that I have that are preventing me from moving forward to be the kind of person that you're calling me to be? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision that we have through Christ Jesus of what it means to be the church, to equip one another for works of service, to, that we would be built up together, that we would reach unity in our faith, that we'd have this intimate knowledge of you and that when we come together, the fullness of who Jesus is is revealed because we're doing it together, because we've said yes to one another, that we want to show up for each other. We want to challenge each other. We want to encourage each other. We want to pray for each other. We want to sing over each other. But we all need that vision in our lives. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to alight upon each of your dear ones here, just as you did 2,000 years ago for the early church. Bless us with your presence. Empower us to live these dynamic lives that you've created us to live for. And God, I have tremendous hope for this season that it's going to be a season of us really digging into what it means to be the people of God. But we need you to guide us. We pray all of these things in the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.